It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Right. Today is June the 30th in 2023, and my guest is Brian Kaplan. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of several books, too many to list here. My personal favorites are Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration, The Case Against Education, and The Myth of the Rational Voter. Big fan of your work, Brian. Has influenced me a lot, has influenced the topic of this podcast a lot. And I read almost every new piece that you're writing. Fantastic Substack for our listeners. Bet on it. Today, we're talking about your new book, Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality. Brian, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here, Nicholas. Brian, before we talk about the book, what are your standard or what is your standard D&D character? <laughs> I'm honestly almost always the game master. So in my high school game, yeah, I basically was the dungeon master for all those years. Uh, now, I guess sometimes I run games for with my sons and sometimes they GM. I guess one of my very favorite games that we did recently, it was a golden age superheroes game. And I played a Japanese pro-democracy samurai fighting against fascist Japan, who was named Shogun Manchuto. And then he had a sidekick named Sideshow, who was like his sycophant. And I would play both and have a conversation with myself. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> so if that doesn't destroy all my credibility, I don't know what will. <laughs> it reflects your character in real life, of course, right? Yeah. <laughs> what D&D alignment reflects you in real life? Would it actually be my second question? I think of myself as chaotic good. Chaotic good. I can see that. Like, I'm neutral good. All right. That's trying to balance between lawful, neutral, and chaotic good. Yeah, I would say that COVID definitely pushed me far in the chaos direction. Yeah, yeah. But so, I don't, if I think the rule's bad, I don't follow it unless you're going to really harshly punish me. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's chaotic good for sure. To the book, how does the book, Voters as Mad Scientist, fit within the work you did before? It seems especially close to the myth of the rational voter. Mm -hmm. Can a bit of, get a bit of context leading up to why you wrote the book? Sure. I mean, The Myth of Rational Voter was my first book published in 2007. And this is the book where I took on what I saw, see as both the academic view, but also a very common popular view of democracy makes sense. If most people think something's a good idea, then it probably is a good idea. Academics in social science have a whole formal rational voter model where they work out the math of this. With regular people, it's more of just the, the American people want this. It's like, okay, well, is the American people right? Maybe they're totally wrong, but that's not something you're supposed to say. Uh, as part of my blog, I write on themes about voter rationality. This is the main thesis of the book that actually voter rationality is quite severe. It's not just a matter of lack of information. It's not just the voters haven't heard the facts. Rather, most voters just have a mindset that is so opposed to rational thinking that you could hand them all the, the relevant facts of a silver platter and they would just knock the platter out of your hand and say, get the, get the, <laughs> get the away, tempter. No, I'm not interested in that stuff. 
I'm now on my blog. I write about these general kinds of topics a lot, as well as politics more generally. Uh, what I wound up doing in 2022 is saying, well, I've got 17 years worth of blog posts. Most of them, nobody's going to read anymore because they're just from too long ago. And also you'd have to sift through too many medium quality posts, say, in order to find the high quality ones. So I had the idea of creating a series of eight books of collected essays where I would pick out the top 5% of the pieces that I wrote. I started with a collection of essays on labor economics called Labor Economics Versus the World. Then I did one on demagoguery called How Evil Are Politicians. Uh, the next one was Don't Be a Feminist on the social injustice movement, as I like to call it. And then this last one is Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Rationality. There's four more books down in the pipeline, but anyway, this is the latest one. And it's basically just goes over what I consider my very best blog posts on political rationality in some sense. Which makes it also very easy and good to read because I feel like every chapter is kind of designed to be easy to consume, like as a blog mm -hmm. post. So that definitely mm -hmm. achieved this purpose. Right. Was... And I tried to organize them also. So I did curation where I said, I'm going to pick out like the top 5% of everything I wrote over the course of 17 years on this topic. And then I split it into four subheadings. And then I also tried to give it a good progression. I'll just say it's subjective, but still. You know, to like start, you know, grip, grip people, go into some greater depth and then end on a high note was the way I was trying to organize the publication of the essays in each section. You already mentioned that voters are irrational, but in your book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, and you're continuing it in this one, you give it a spin. There is, there is kind of rational to be irrational by politics. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Sure. All right. Think about this. Suppose that you go to the grocery store and you throw a bunch of stuff you don't want into your shopping cart. Right, you go and you check out, you pay for it, and what's happened? You just threw away a pile of your own money on stuff you don't want. Very few people do this. On the other hand, suppose that you go into a voting booth and vote for a bunch of stuff that is going to be terrible for you. What happens to you as a result? The hard answer is the same thing that would have happened to you anyway, because you're just one little person in a giant body of millions of people, uh, which means that at minimum, there is a just much weaker incentive to really scrutinize what you are voting for than what you are purchasing as a consumer. A lot of economists even want to say, oh, well, democracy is just like the marketplace of ideas. They say it's not a marketplace at all. There's a whole different economic concept to describe what politics is, and that is not a market, but a commons. It's common property. Uh, the analogy that I like is that Politics is basically like a pond where we use it for two things. First of all, trash disposal. We throw away all of our junk. And second of all, it's also only water supply, unfortunately. So when you go and put more trash into this pond, it barely changes the flavor and color of your water. But given that everybody else is using it this way, you put your glass of water in and this stuff is dreck. That's what yeah. I say democracy is. It's, uh, it's all of the intellectual junk that we throw into our common pool of policy ideas. And what happens is basically what people throw in there, however crummy it is. And it's pretty crummy. Yeah, it definitely did change my mind. I was more in the naive um, camp before mm -hmm. where there's, well, yeah. we need it's to have tempting, specific spirits. Um, yeah, well, like what the people have decided is this. It's like the people don't really, like, like no person makes a decision. So really at best you can say democracy is a popularity contest. 
Why should there be any close relationship between what sounds good and makes people like it and what actually works? What did, however, help me a lot in kind of understanding why I was or still am to some degree pro-democracy, or at least I like it more than other systems, is that you also say or start, well, what's good about it? What is that? Mm -hmm. Well, let's see. What can we say is good about democracy? And there's always the best place to start is just with the historical track record. So democracy rarely mass murders its own citizens. I'll take that as a big plus. It's a big plus. <laughs> yes. Uh, democracies almost never fight each other. There are some arguments about whether the Confederacy was a democracy or whether Germany before World War I is a democracy. The basic point is sound that it's very unusual for democracies to fight each other. Uh, you've got that. Uh, it's very unusual for democracies to go into prison. A large percentage of people who just disagree with the government. Uh, you've got that. Uh, I'll also say no democracy has ever voted for full-blown communism. Um, so if this all seems to be damned with faint praise, or oh, yeah, it is, but still credit where credit is due. Uh, all these things are correct. Exactly. So it's got a little bit of a, or it's got a safety mechanism against you know, having someone who's doing very obviously bad and unpopular things to the majority of people. Right, especially but, in the short run. You know, I, so I say, you know, democracy is very little check upon doing things that are very harmful in the long run, but it just takes a long time for the damage to be obvious. Uh, democracies are also terrible at realizing missed opportunities. So if there's something much better that we could be doing, but the status quo is okay, we'll keep doing it. You know, if there was a way that we could go and eliminate aging, I think democracy would not bother because it's just, we are used to death. And so the fact that there's some way where we wouldn't have to die anymore, I think it's not too likely that democracy would do much about it. More realistically, democracies have been terrible at cashing in on the incredible potential of nuclear power. The science is there. It's the best kind. It's an incredible technology which we have basically allowed to just sit there rusting in the outdoors for, gee, like, like 80 years now. Yeah. Um, let's also capture some of the key concepts that I find recurring in your work and also in this book that really help understand oh, a lot in the world. So what are the top three concepts you would say that explain the world in Brian Kaplan's view? And I can take a stab at them myself and feel free to edit them if you would take sure. out one. So social desirability bias, status quo bias, and revealed preferences. Yeah, I think those are three that are definitely way up there. Social desirability bias is definitely in my top three. So why don't we start there? This is really the probably most neglected concept in all of psychology. It makes a lot of sense. It explains a lot, but even the psychologists themselves don't really give it its due. It's a very simple idea. It comes down to this. If the truth sounds bad, people lie. If the lies become ubiquitous enough, then people often just forget that it's even a lie and they just repeat it as if it's fact, even though it's obviously wrong. Simplest examples of this would be things like, am I fat? Well, there's only one socially acceptable answer to that. You're not you're ever supposed to say, oh yeah, totally, you're pig. Okay. This was, oh no, no, you're great, you're great. Of course, sometimes the thing that sounds good is, uh, is actually true, but a lot of times it's not. And social desirability bias says that when the truth is ugly, people just don't say it. People say lies. Lots of examples of this. If you just start looking around, you can see things like people overstate church attendance, they overstate voting, they overstate 
their abilities. If you ask people, are you above or below the typical person in your driving ability? Almost everyone says they're above average in driving ability, above average in their ability to get along with others. So there's a lot of stuff like this. But then once you really absorb the idea, what you'll notice is that politics is just so infused with social desirability bias, it's hard to see that anything else is going on often. So if you just go and look at the speech of a politician you like, never mind the other guys, it's easy to say the politicians you don't like are lying. Look at the speech of a politician you like. Just take the sentences, sentence by sentence, and just say, is the sentence literally true? And I say that you will generally find that even the politicians you like are just obviously stating one falsehood after another. And what am I talking about? Things like, we will do whatever it takes to save Ukraine. So you'll go and do World War III if that's what is necessary. Okay, well, not that. So then it's not really whatever it takes. Or things like, nothing is more important than education. Isn't food more important than education? Of course. So you just said something that's incorrect. Right. Anytime people just say, like, you know, price no object. It's like, well, if it's your money, price is an object. This is what we see going on in politics. I say politics is greatly infused with social desirability bias. What I explained in my other book on demagoguery, uh, how evil are politicians, is that really this uh, social desirability bias is the concept that lets us understand what's going on in politics. It's basically politicians just saying a pile of lies that sound good because people want to hear things that sound good and don't care much about truth. And that's really what demagoguery is all about. It's this classic Greek concept, but it's one that we tend to not really think about that much because once you start pointing fingers at the other side for their ridiculous lies, like, huh, well, are we really much better? You realize, gee, it seems like this is a contest so corrupt that honest people can't really win. So yeah, yeah. social desirability bias. Then let's see, I think the next one that you mentioned. Status quo bias. Uh, status quo bias. Yeah, this is one that has gotten a lot more attention. It just comes down to people tend to accept the world as it is. So whatever we're currently doing, people think is okay. This means that if you are a demagogue, step one to getting to do whatever you want is just do it. And then people get used to it. Just declare a war and then the war becomes popular. And uh, specifically on this, there's a lot of evidence in what's called the rally around the flag effect. You can make a war a lot more popular just by declaring it. People that wouldn't have supported the war the day before. It's like, oh, we're in a war. Yay, great. And yeah, then, criminalization you know, of drugs is also an example, right? Of a pardon? Criminalization of drugs. Yes. Uh, so it's like, like going on, alcohol but illegal, status quo. So. Say, obviously, you can't make alcohol legal. Think of the children. Think about the accidents. Think about the destroyed lives. And it's like, yeah, all well, that's true. But on the other hand, uh, first of all, think about all the people that enjoy the product. There's a lot of them. <laughs> and, then, and then also think about all of the collateral damage of trying to ban something. And yet for drugs, people are totally fine with it. So we become fine with banning it because we have banned it. Uh, in the case of like legalizing marijuana, what's really striking is legalization has proceeded quite quickly in terms of the like, well, why did we ban it all those years anyway? Why were we going and putting people in jail over something that in many ways seems less bad than alcohol? It's like, oh, moving on. We can't go and <laughs> dwell in the past. <laughs> It's legal now. You should be happy with that. It's like, hmm, should somebody actually be accountable for this stuff? And then the last one you mentioned is reveal preference. The actions speak louder than words. Uh, in a way, this is actually so closely tied with social desirability bias. It's almost the way you know that something is social desirability bias is if you see that someone says one thing but does another. That is what I say is really the hardcore test of whether 
they are even sincere in their belief in it or whether it's just something that people are saying in order to sound good. Some of my favorite examples, this is one that where we actually have studies. Uh, first of all, if you, know, you ask people, what would you do hypothetically if you conceived a Down syndrome child? For this, only about a third of people say they would abort. But we also have data on what really happens when people have a Down pregnancy. And then we see that about 90% abort. What's the difference? Big difference is saying you're going to abort a Down syndrome child sounds terrible. But when it actually comes down to it, it's like, yeah, well, it sounds terrible, but I would rather not have to live this life of raising a handicapped child than to have to live up to the letter of what sounds good. Uh, but as long as it's just hypothetical, then people will say whatever sounds good. Let's see some other nice examples. Let's see. I, I can't remember whether it's in the book, but I did this interview with podcaster Andrew Sullivan. He is British. And this is me doing my impression of Andrew doing his impression of his brother. Andrew, London's not England anymore. And by this, Andrew's brother, at least according to Andrew, means that he lives in London, but London's terrible now because there's so many immigrants there. Now, when I pointed out, well, gee, if the immigrants make it so terrible, why don't you just go and live in a low immigration part of the UK? And for this, you can really just say, oh, well, it's not that bad. It's like, okay, well, that kind of undermines all your complaining if you say it's like the immigrants make this 1% or 2% worse. Or you can say, no, it's absolutely terrible. It's like, well, then if it's so terrible, why don't you do something about it? I shouldn't have to. Well, even if you shouldn't have to, even so, for wouldn't prudence dictate that you do, we shouldn't have to just to go and make things good. If there were bombs going off every day in London, you probably would move away, wouldn't you? Just like a lot of Ukrainians left. It's like, why shouldn't have to move? Yeah, you shouldn't have to, but what good is that going to do you when the bombs are dropping? People will do things that actually work out better for them. So yes, reveal preference, I say, is sort of what the, it's the tool that we use to identify when people actually believe the stuff that they are saying, uh, or whether it's actually something where when they really, when push comes to shove, they realize, yeah, I don't actually care about this that much. Yeah. But what surprised me, I listened to that interview with you with Andrew Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And he was so emotional about it. Okay. Get really worked up very uncharacteristically. Hmm. So, so I was asking myself, why is he getting so emotional about, well, you know, what is actually his real preference <laughs> that you're just pointing yeah. out in a way? Yeah, I feel like another great one is someone who says, God's the most important thing in my life. And they never go to church. They never read any religious books. Don't try to convert everyone, anyone. And it's like, well, doesn't seem like it's all that important to you. And then they get upset. I actually asked Andrew that and he didn't want to face the question. He just said, like, you know, who are you to go and second guess what people say? It's like, I'm someone who observes their behavior directly contradicts what they say. So yeah. it's one thing to say it's rude, but if we are actually getting to the underlying facts, then sometimes you got to be rude. Yeah. But I wonder what it is that makes people sort of have these emotional barriers around these topics. Is it like some kind of a taboo? Or is it like what Robin Hansen calls the sacred? Sort of it's kind of a yeah, marker sure. of you know, your identity. All or... It's all tied in. Mm. Obviously, if there is a belief that's emotionally important to a person, but it's on very shaky grounds, then they tend to be quite touchy about it. This is the history of religion, history and history of politics in the modern era, which, as many people long before me noted, politics has really largely displaced religion as the thing that people hold as sacred. Uh, same basic idea, like this idiot, you are a sinner even to ask that terrible, wicked question. Yeah. 
There's one other concept that's also showing up in much of your work, more so in your friend Michael Humer's work, and that's pro-authority bias. Mm -hmm. So I find oh, that yeah. in many contexts explaining um, what is pro-authority mm -hmm. bias. I was just thinking that if whoever is in charge says something or does something that it's going to be good, it's basically might makes right is another way of thinking about it. See, in one of these books of essays, I actually talk about the general story of why people don't like markets, which uh, comes from Bastiat and just as well. The problem is that in markets, costs are unseen. Like, like people don't really think about what could we have instead of government if we didn't have it. What I said there is, this doesn't really fit because there are a lot of cases where people are totally fine with accepting unseen benefits on faith. Uh, for example, if a government says, well, it may seem terrible to go fight this war, but trust me, this is going to be great for our country in the long run. So you don't get to see these long run benefits. You basically just take the word for it and hope it works out. And I see the same thing goes for religion, of course. You say, look, you know, follow me and you'll get eternal paradise. It's like, hmm. Seems like you're just telling me what I want to hear. Uh, don't have any real evidence that this paradise exists. Yeah. And yet people historically have been pretty willing to go and accept this stuff. So I say it is not really this general category of what is seen versus what is not seen, but rather a more substantive just distrust of business and the rich combined with a great deal of deference for government and traditional religion, at least in societies where that's popular. Of course, it doesn't yeah. mean they retain their authority forever, uh, but nevertheless, it's a strong human tendency. Yeah, and it shows in of government officials or any official institutions uh, wearing uniforms, They're using very officiated legalese language that sounds oh, yeah. complex yeah. or like yeah. um, wearing suits and having these buildings that are just very large and make you seem very small. Yeah, or one that just uh, pop popped into my head yesterday, I was reading the Supreme Court cases on affirmative action I was reading them. I was saying, you know, like, these people aren't really any better than just nine bloggers. But there's one difference between these people and nine bloggers, which is you get five, uh, five out of nine and it's the law of the land. But I mean, like, even the way they write, it's like, I find that very hard to believe, which for a normal person is like, okay, some guy finds something hard to believe. Who cares? <laughs> but if you're Supreme Court Justice, like, oh my God, these, this guy finds it hard to believe. This means that everyone is going to have to go and live the way he wants us to live. Ah, it's just funny to, realize that you just put on the robes and say you are now a supreme court justice they're like well oh, what was a blogger before is now a sage yeah i feel like also in the age of twitter that shows more clearly that people who are like in positions of power have few followers and you see when mm -hmm. they're really defending arguments they're not really good at it yeah right yeah, and it's funny how that... many Powerful politicians actually have almost no followers. It seems like barely anyone's even aware they're alive. Um, and then the question is like, why couldn't someone more popular beat them? A lot of the stories, of course, the geographical nature of representation. So that the 5,000 followers, some congressmen never heard of, probably almost all those followers are in their district. Whereas you see someone with 50,000 followers, yeah, but they don't have 5,000 followers anywhere in any district. So it's too spread out. Yeah, so probably if it were more like a proportional representation system nationally, then it would be more important to actually have a lot of people know who you are. But yeah, in the U.S. it doesn't. It's actually a good, uh, the, you know, it's a pretty testable hypothesis. We can actually see whether like mid-level politicians in proportional representation countries have more Twitter followers compared to top people than in the U.S. I don't know. Seems plausible. Yeah. 
why are we ungrateful to internet companies and big business in general? Right. I'd, so what I say is that there's just a general human tendency to be negative about business and the rich. It's just very hard to go and give them any credit. This is not even a political thing. I think this is just basic human nature. It just chokes in our throat to go and say that a business is great or that a corporation is great or that a rich person is great. Uh, to go and say, oh, that rich guy, he made every, he earned every penny he's got. Like, not, this is not very culturally specific. I don't, you know, like, like if you just go and read almost anything written throughout human history, almost any country, just very hard to find any person just writing about, I just love business. I love rich people. They're so great. Yeah. So this is just, I mean, I think just a, like, a very basically, a basic evolved human emotion. And then what I say is that Left-wing political thought is basically taking these emotions and codifying them. It's turning them into, you know, you're turning them from emotions where the, it's easier to be inconsistent and hypocritical into a coherent philosophy of being negative about business and the rich. So I say that there's just this basic general emotion of negativity. And then this combines with roughly half of organized political movements have consciously codified these emotions into negativity towards business and the rich, which then amplifies this basic human tendency. Yeah, I wonder sometimes because it doesn't, the puzzle isn't entirely solved to me. So it seems to me mm -hmm. that the populism against big tech companies or big business in general mm -hmm. is a bit less general population than more of an elite political thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I've done like consumer and public opinion surveys for years and years, mm -hmm. and it consistently showed that people were much are very pro big brands, right? And they like. So, I know they're like pro companies. Amazon, but like most of the other tech brands seem like they were not so popular. Although still better than the local poli than, than like poli like Congress. Oh, they so, actually yeah, very popular. So. Like Seventy percent approval, but like Facebook or at least like thirty, Twitter or Twitter I guess like twenty. Yeah, it could be wrong. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a matter of how you ask the question. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. So that influences or biases people in a lot of direct like, and often they're like, "Oh, did you like the service?" Right. They mm -hmm. don't think about them as a company mm -hmm. or how they're acting. Right. So most mm -hmm. people don't have strong opinions about that. Yeah. For me, that's just a service that I yeah. use. It's good. And let's move on. So, yeah. I mean, if you were to go and ask specifically, what do you think about the influence of Amazon on American politics? Then I think you would get not much support. Yeah, probably. Yeah, so but then, then, it's, then it's like, oh, these evil businesses are like, are, are not, they're not staying in their lane. Like they're trying to actually influence policy or we, <laughs> which might destroy their business. How dare they? Uh, there is a lot of that. Let's see. So, I mean, what's striking to me is things like privacy regulations, uh, which are imposed on internet companies and made most people's lives convenient, but it was just very hard to get anyone on TV just saying, this is a ridiculous made-up problem. Who really cares about privacy anyway? Like, you're a nobody. What difference does it make whether somebody knows what you're buying? And these people that get on TV and complain about it are a bunch of crybabies. And why should we go and burden these successful businesses with these issues? That seems something that's pretty much absent. And even the corporations themselves don't want to say that because they look bad. It's more like they want to say, well, we're trying our best here. It's like, oh, sure, you're trying your best to protect privacy. No business leader wants to get up and say, we're not trying very hard on this because it turns out hardly anybody cares. And we try to focus on things our customers actually give a damn about. Yeah. You criticized Tyler Cowen in that chapter, uh, who had the view that people don't like business because it's a large impersonal force. Mm -hmm. What was your response to that? 
Yeah, again, I said that there's a lot of large impersonal forces that are very popular. So government's popular, military's popular, religion has generally been popular. So it's just not true. And I say, like, it really comes down to something very particular to business and the rich, which is like, they're, you know, these are people that are using their brains to go and make money, not worrying a lot about what sounds good. They're just trying to get the job done. They're not very ideological generally. Even when they do say something ideological, you like you always have a sense of it's more pandering. They're just trying to go and weasel and cover their bases and then move on and count count their money, right? So I say that this is really quite special. Now again, like when I'm talking about historical patterns or like historical writings, one that's pretty striking to me is if you go and read the medieval Catholic theologians or also just like early Reformation theologians, they have tons of complaining about business and the rich. But they basically almost never breathe a word against any ruling monarch. They were obviously way richer <laughs> right, than any of the business people. You know, you see that you've got some burger who's got a nice house in downtown Amsterdam. Then you look at the royal palace. It's like, which of these is of a richer guy? Uh, I think this fits very nicely with my humor story about Stockholm syndrome being evolved, which is people are very happy to go and lash out at the rich guy that isn't capable or at least is very little likelihood of killing them over it. But on the other hand, if there's a really rich, powerful guy who kills you for criticism, then you almost, not only do you keep your mouth shut, you almost forget that he's a rich guy. So you'll have medieval theologians saying like, if only our great lords would go and defend us against these rapacious merchants. And it's like, hey, who's more rapacious than the guy who built these palaces and squeezes people and squeezes the pennies out of the peasants? Like you know, the merchants actually are offering products in order to get their money. What does the Lord offer other than I don't kill you if you give me what I want? But it fits with the Stockholm Syndrome story of you want to suck up and even to, and to curry favor with powerful people. But on the other hand, if someone that's rich, but they don't have a lot of political power, you, know, you can think about like medieval jewelry. They, they got a lot of money, but they're vulnerable. They're unpopular. They do not hold, they don't have a military, they don't have the police, so they got to go and get the Lord on their side. And if the Lord ever decides to say, hey, do whatever you want to the Jews, then there's a pogrom. That was, you're actually anticipating what I thought would be me criticizing <laughs> some of your weed that you had in the mm -hmm. book by um, talking about that with pro authority bias and siding with the powerful. Uh, because in the book, you um, can you talk about the simplistic theory of left and right as opposed mm -hmm. to Scott Alexander's or others? Yes. So there's this question. What does the left have in common with the left? What does the right have in common with the right? It's a big challenge because these are worldwide concepts and they go back for a long time. There's a number of competing stories that people have put forward, like Scott Alexander defended the survive, thrive theory. Or saying, well, rightism is it what you get when you're trying to survive, leftism is what you when you're trying to thrive. And I say that story makes very little sense at all. Guess what happens during wars? During wars, governments switch to much more socialist policies, much more left-wing policies, exactly the opposite of what you'd be predicting if you thought it was about the survive-thrive theory. I say, really, he's just greatly overrating the importance of modern Bay Area leftism with its identity politics, which again is just one very tiny piece of a 200 year left-wing movement. Uh, so what I say, uh, the best story is this. And I, you know, I call this simplistic theory because I'm admitting it doesn't explain everything. 
And there's glaring exceptions, and I just totally admit that. But I still think this is the best simple explanation of what's been going on for the last 200 years over the world. Right, so I'm broadening the sample a lot. So I, I really want to say, like, basically from the French Revolution on, we, uh, that's when you first get left versus right. And we, so it's around the world. So we got roughly 200 years worth of politics in about 200 countries almost. And I say that the best simple theory here, or even simplistic, is the left is anti-market and the right is anti-left. So notice the asymmetry. A lot of people say, no, well, why don't you just say the left is anti-market and the right is pro-market? Yeah, because there are a lot of anti-market right-wingers. You can look right now at national conservatives complaining about all the horrible harm the free market has done to families, calling for protectionism, calling for immigration restrictions, calling for industrial policy. Where you could look at Nazis or fascists and say, look, they're not small government people, not by a, not by a country mile. Uh, so then what is it that all these right-wing movements do have in common? I say, look, it just comes down to not liking the left. But I say that the, for the left, it is different. For the left, really, their primary enemy is the market. And you can even see that if you just go and read very left-wing publications, sure, they'll go and criticize the right, but they will even go after very left-wing business people, very left-wing rich people. They're mad at Bezos. They're mad at Gates. People that you might say are trying to buy them off, but they can't be bought off because they just have such a deep-seated resentment to business and the rich. Now, many people mischaracterize my story as saying the left hates business, the right hates the left. That word hate is too strong. Sometimes it's true, but I just say, look, it's just antipathy. It's just a distaste. And what does that distaste amount to? What it amounts to is that left-wing people, if you just say, hey, here's what I want you to do. Tell me something good about business and then don't have any, and then shut up. Say, say a, a, a totally positive sentence about business and then be quiet. Do it. And what I'll say is left-wing people, it just chokes them to do, do that. Just, you know, let's say like Amazon is great delivery time, but we must remember, you know, that's the second part where like you just have so much antipathy, you can't bear to just give unadulterated praise ever. And if they say, look, I'm not anti-market. I just think the markets fail their workers. They fail consumers. They fail the environment. Like that is being anti-market. It's just having a long list of complaints that you bring up almost every time we broach the subject. And yeah, the same goes for right-wingers. It just chokes in their throat to say something unabashedly positive about the left and then shut up. You know, most modern Republicans love Social Security and Medicare programs that are started by Democrats. So you might think they could say, well, look, it was great how the Democrats started these two wonderful programs, the end. But you know they're not going to do that. They're going to say, but modern Democrats are terrible and they've betrayed everything that FDR and Lyndon Johnson ever stood for. And like, they would never think, and like, so you just can't bear to just say something totally positive about them. And that is in a way the sign of resentment. Like if you ask someone, how do you feel about your mother? Well, she didn't raise me and take care of me and feed me, but my mother also berated me and made fun of me. It's like, that's antipathy. It's where someone can do a bunch of good things, but you can't bear to just say the good things and then be silent. You've got to go and get your negativity off your chest. That what it means. That's what it means to feel antipathy. It doesn't mean you hate your mother, but it means you got antipathy. Clearly. Yeah. Now, the way that I think about it simplistic is, I, say, I try this thought experiment. I say, imagine that we just get leftists from the last 200 years all over the world, put them in a room and say, you got to write a joint statement that 80% of you can agree with. What will that statement be? I say, it's going to be a bunch of complaints about markets. 
On the other hand, do that for right-wingers all over the world for the last 200 years. What are they going to agree on? They're not going to agree on the economics. There's going to be free traders and protectionists. There's going to be people who like big business, people who don't like big business. But what they are going to be able to agree on is the left sucks. <laughs> Those people bug me. And that's what their joint statement will consist in. Yeah. Didn't chew it with me that much it's because in my experience, it was seemed to me even more the left is more anti-right than the other way around. Maybe I haven't spent that much time with more right-wingers. I mean, I do, I do read that, a, lot, that, a lot of left-wing stuff. So it, again, it's striking to me how you know, if you are business and the rich, no matter how left-wing they are, they cannot actually get a break from real left-wing people. Yeah. And at the same time, the right-wing people that I know interact with, they seem to have much less of a problem with other left-wing people. But again, I think it's, I'm in a very specific, more like yeah, gray, think, gray yeah. tribe Bay Area. Yeah, so, think, I mean, so I think that's probably the explanation. Again, of course, another explanation is I'm just totally wrong. Uh, but yeah, if you just go and read, like, like definitely American right-wing websites, you can just see like, this is, like the left is terrible about this and that and the other thing. There's not that much of a positive vision. Yeah. Um, yeah, whereas you know, with the left, you might say, well, it's not a positive vision. This is like, well, the positive vision is we're going to crush the markets. We're going to get them in line to show them who's boss. The man controlling trade, famous statue of a really buff guy taking a horse and like showing him like, like you're, you're a horse. You're going to serve man. You can't go around kicking everybody all the time. You're going to behave. Yeah. I mean, to me, what made sense was something that Arnold Kling wrote in response to one of your essays responding to Thomas Sowell's mm -hmm. um, constrained and unconstrained vision, which seemed to me a Schumpeterian view. And he said that there are elite views that we describe in certain ways and that have some consistency to them by the people mm -hmm. that are expressing them. But the masses operate on the basis of folk beliefs, right? And elites mm -hmm. compete for power by appealing and manipulating mm -hmm. these folk beliefs. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. um, when it comes to, and, and then the other thing is the, um, that people side with the ones in power, right? So government, the church is, there's just no point in criticizing many things like, should these agencies be there in the first place, like mm -hmm. the FDA, or should they be able to decide mm -hmm. all, all these things? Because there is just no way anything is, it's, it would be irrational because there's nothing you can do about it, right? So right. And but with businesses, you yeah. can... Um, mm -hmm. But on the simplistic theory, I would think, so you are, are you from Denmark or were you from Nicholas? Germany. Oh, Germany. Okay. Ah, so anyway, so uh, yeah, even better actually, right? So you just think about European politics, even parties that we think of as very right wing are not really pro markets on the continent, right? So if you were to say, you know, the idea that like the Christian Democrats are really pro market would, I think, be pretty, pretty strange take on things. Uh, on the other hand, to say, so what is it that they stand for? Well, they don't, they stand against the left. So they stand like, you know, definitely like we're against Marxism. We're against uh, anything that seems like Marxism. Of course, there'll be different things. The approach, like Christian Democrats, some kind of Christian values. There'll be nationalist parties that, that promote some kind of nationalism. But the thing that all those parties have in common is, you know, the left, you know, get away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems to me that... Right? It seems that no political party really likes the market, right? Because mm -hmm. the markets can deliver on things mm -hmm. that they want to deliver on or have power over. Right. right? Also, so, you know, like, you know, like, like, obviously, there is a lot of gross left-wing exaggeration about neoliberal parties and their influence. Then you say that among the American Republican Party, among the like, Thatcherite Conservative Party, you actually did. And then like, like also in some of the 
post-communist parties in Eastern Europe, you saw actual pro-market parties. So it's not unheard of. But yeah, it's true that it's rare. And even the ones that say they're pro-market are pretty inconsistent. Nevertheless, you can see there are some major political parties that do have, or at least rhetorically pro-market. But what I'll say is that's only one corner of the right. And there's a much broader right-wing movement when like, what do they all have in common? Like, what does the American Republican Party have in common with Christian Democrats? And it's like, well, like not liking the left is what I say is what they have in common. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, what but it seems Democrats to me as they're... With, with, with American Democrats is, yeah, like complaining about markets. That's what yeah. they have in common. I mean, it seems to me that these are temporary coalitions, right? So, you know, you have this story that in this election cycle can win over kind of a segment that could help you strategically mm -hmm. win votes or elections. And then the next cycle you move on, right? So there's mm -hmm. parts of the population that are totally neglected and you don't care about them because they vote for you anyway. And then others you'd really try to infuse with a certain mm -hmm. story, right? And mm -hmm. then, you know, what you end up with is not really sort of a historically consistent picture, mm -hmm. but it's just these very temporary coalitions and stories. But then in over time, not much of a change when it comes to, so with the market view, for example, government spending has consistently increased. The amount of federal regulation has consistently increased even under Reagan. Sorry, sorry, you said with where? In the United States. In the United States. Mm -mm. Uh, I would assume in well, Europe. Well, so it's not consistent. I mean, there, there was a big period of deregulation tax cuts in the 70s and 80s. And then... And there were even some further echoes of that in the 90s under Clinton with welfare reform. And then, yes, so, so I'd say the government has been rising in the U.S. for about 30 years or so, 25, 30 years. But the idea that it's all going one direction is not correct. Yeah, that's fair. And, and obviously, Eastern Europe is there's a huge move away from socialism to capitalism. Now, nowhere close to all the way. And even in like Germany, for example, there was a lot of labor market deregulation, for example. So there have been, and I think actually marginal tax rates probably were also peaked in the 70s or 80s, like almost every other country. So it's important to remember that these changes do you know, happen. It's not just moving one dimension. Yeah, but, but again, often one direction, so when you're really forced to, <laughs> when it's otherwise really hard to. Really true, they're forced to. Like, you know, it's like what Germans are going to move to France if the tax rates are too high, maybe a few, but not too many. I do, I do, have, a friend, I do have a German friend who avoids living in any country for six months of the year so he doesn't pay any taxes. <laughs> but there's not a lot of people doing what he does. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Can you talk about the distinction between material dominance and rhetorical dominance? Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites. Okay, so here's the thing. If you take a look at the real world, of, I mean, of, there there's some sense in which woke complaints about the rule of rich white males is true. It's like, how so? It says, well, you go and take a look at the heads uh, of major corporations, heads of major science institutes. You look at just who owns the, who owns the highest income. You can see that all these things that white males are greatly overrepresented. Right. So in some sense, then you could say that, well, complaints are true. But there's another sense in which they're totally false. Namely, if you were to go give a speech saying, you know who our society owes almost all of its goodness to? Rich white males. This is one where the cancellation would be at the thermonuclear level. So it's like, hmm, that's odd. And on the other hand, you can go take a look at your typical woke professor. On the one hand, their income is not very good. You know, like maybe they're earning like the median income or a bit more. So like, you know, some, some professor of African-American history, he's not generally earning a lot of money. He's at some crummy school nobody's heard of. 
So you might say, in one sense, he has very little dominance. On the other hand, he feels very free to speak his mind and to say everything that he thinks is good and bad. And people are afraid to contradict that guy. Right? Certainly, his students are afraid to contradict him. But even if you were just to meet this person in conversation and he started going and talking about white fragility, it's a pretty brave person that will go and start arguing with a professor of African-American studies and say, no, you're wrong. Uh, you're not being discriminated against. Actually, it's being discriminated for. It's just that your success is low. Which is so, why it's always the, each side is feeling like a minority. Yeah. Right? Because one feels yeah. like oppressed by the rhetorical dominance, like on mm -hmm. the left. Right. Yeah. Because they have like the academia and media and university. And then the other side feels mm -hmm. oppressed because they feel the right has so much material wealth and money power. And things right. Like that, right. Yeah. So from the right wing point of view, they can say, hey, look, the left runs the government half the time. They run the culture all the time. I'm oppressed. But on the other hand, people on the left could just look and say, hey, well, look at this incredible representation of white males and maybe Asian males they'll tack on now and how they are at the top of almost every major area of society, especially areas where their money is. So they're the ones that are doing great. And we're oppressed. Anyway, so in this essay, I said, well, why don't we just split the difference and say there's two senses that we're talking about and say, look, there's material dominance where you've just got high income and you get to run and you run things like you run business, run a science institute, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But there's another sense of dominance, which is that you get to shoot your mouth off and people are afraid of, afraid to contradict. So I call the first one material dominance and the second one rhetorical dominance. Then I noticed that basically in a dictatorship, that's where you get both dominances together, right? So Saudi Arabia, all right, the Saudi royal family, they got full material dominance. They're worth hundreds of billions of dollars. They've got palaces, they've got yachts. So they got you know, like incredible riches, but they also can totally control the politics of the country. And furthermore, Everyone who wants to keep his head on his shoulder says they're great, ordained by Allah. So they got rhetorical and material locked together, fused perfectly. And that's the same thing like in the old Soviet Union, you've got the party apparatchiks. They run the country. They are the richest people in the country. They're the ideologists. Anyone who contradicts them can expect Siberia or worse. Or just go back to your medieval absolute monarchy. Yeah, well... You got the king, he's got his palaces, he's got money. He's also ordained by God and every churchman who wants to keep preaching and keep his sinecure had better go and say, oh yeah, God totally thinks Louis the 14th is an awesome guy. God saved the king. Um, so on the one, one hand, you can say a sign of a place that isn't a total dictatorship is that least material and rhetorical dominance are totally aligned. And there's two different kinds of things going on. Um, then the other thing is just to realize that there's basically both sides are kind of crybabies because they are going and acting like they're totally oppressed and powerless. It's like, oh, there's like two different senses. You've got something. You're not really totally oppressed. The one that I think people ultimately think is, yeah, it's not true that white males, Asian males are totally oppressed. They, they're, they're doing pretty well on balance. There's a good question about whether they would be doing even better if the system were totally meritocratic, but that doesn't mean that they are miserable. But on the other hand, the one that's really clear, I'd say, is all the people talking about their oppression and people are afraid to say a word against them. It's like, look, you are an oppressor, obviously. If you weren't, you wouldn't be shooting your mouth off like this. And you'd be worried that other people would take offense at what you're saying and say that you're bad. But you aren't worried because you do have this great kind of priestly dominance in our society. 
And that is really what wokeness has. It's basically like a priesthood where even though they don't own all the money, they don't get to go and decide everything, but still, oh, like the, the woke priests are speaking, we must go and show them due deference or else they'll get very angry and they will summon the mob of people with their Twitter pitchforks. Yeah. Uh, in the book, I'm not sure I got it from a chapter of the from the book, I generally wanted to ask you mm -hmm. about recency bias, right? Can you talk a bit about yeah. that and how it influences yeah, politics? I mean, I'm more often called myopia in the literature. Mm -hmm. so yeah, but it comes, but I sort of myopia in time specifically. Uh, so for example, there's been a lot of research on does the state of the economy matter for re-election of incumbents? And the answer is yes, but basically it's just the three months before the election that count a lot and the other stuff doesn't matter very much. So, you know, the, and again, this makes sense that people are, voting very emotionally. If conditions are bad right now, that's going to make you upset. Whereas if conditions were bad over the last four years during the full reign of the current person of power, but improved a lot in the last three months, then all right, well, um, you're probably not going to be feeling so bad about stuff at that long ago. Even though if you're really trying to give good incentives, you don't just give rewards based upon the last thing. This would really be like having a class where there's an exam every week, but your, your grade depends entirely upon the last week's exam, which is only on 5% material. Like this is not a good system, right? Yeah. The system would take an average. I mean, this is why it is so ridiculous that standardized tests services now generally let you use your very highest test. Back when I was a student, they took an average, which is the statistically sound thing. As it is now, they're basically encouraging people to throw the dice as many times as they can in order to tell they get a high score by luck. Yeah. Yeah. Recency bias is something that I've discussed several times in my podcast, because it seems to me that a lot of bad policy, like, for example, mm. having these big regulatory agencies like the FDA, mm. having these airport mm. security restrictions, having like Dodd-Frank mm. after the financial crisis, you're mm. often driven by recent events, yes. right? So there's yeah, these yeah, crisis yeah, and inflection. Very true. Yeah. 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 So I mean, again, like, if, like you would think that full recency bias would basically say if something hasn't happened for a while, then people would want to deregulate. So it's not, I, I think it's not quite that, but yeah, you're definitely right. And then you have that, status quo yes, bias. Yeah. So I mean, so I, I mean, I think about this as fitting in with the availability cascades model of Grant and Sunstein, where basically when there's a vivid event, it makes, gets people very worried about it. And it makes people, basically when there's a vivid rare event, people temporarily overestimate its importance. And when that's going on, that's when people drive through onerous regulation designed to deal with that exact problem, really heedless of the costs. And then as time passes, basically in order to get rid of it, there would need to be a vivid event showing that the regulation was really bad. And that doesn't happen very often. It's yeah, much easier to get protected by event. status quo bias, right? Yeah. 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 But, you know, but also it's just hard to have a really vivid thing that could have happened, but didn't. Right? There's never a vivid event of, oh man, it would have been so awesome if we had nuclear power. But there is a vivid event of a nuclear meltdown. Yeah, the scene and the unseen. I can never unread the piece you wrote about trains versus airport ah. security. Oh, yes, yes. So I just got back from Europe. So again, you're like, hey, there's like no security here at all. You could kill everybody if you were so inclined. And a few times this happened, right? So I think that in that piece, I said there's been like 250 deaths from terrorism on European trains for the, over the last 40 or 50 years. And yeah, 250 people died, but guess what? We got an exchange convenience for billions of people. 
exactly. Like the piece is about sort of just think, why don't we have like that strict security on trains, but we do have them at airports. Yeah. And then you end yeah. up with, um, yeah, kind of a yeah, recent I mean, bias, maybe like, 9-11. The train, that like it, the one bomb in a train could kill everyone on the train practically. It's, it's really easy. And you know, there's not even a metal detector to get on these European trains. There's a couple exceptions, like the high-speed trains in Spain. There is a, a, a security check, although pretty cursory one by airport standards. And meanwhile, to get on a plane, they're throwing away your liquids. The liquids? Yeah. <laughs> or looking at your laptop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like you have to take out your so phone. So much you can hide yeah, in there. Yeah. Like, like in Frankfurt Airport, I had to take out my phone for extra screening. You know, like, that's the dumbest stuff. Like, they threw away my sunblock. Yeah, it now makes me quite angry each time I'm flying now at these airports when I go yeah. through all of this, especially in recent, it's yeah. gotten much worse. Like the lines when you don't have like global entry or clear, especially in the United States. Or when I mean, you I'm comparing this them. to flying during COVID where you had a whole additional set of ner of especially nerve wracking regulations. I flew a lot during COVID. So when like the, le the final rules were you have to have your test within 24 hours of landing. Which then it's like, you're taking the test just a few hours before you fly. What if like the thing doesn't work? And like, wow, Jesus, like my whole family's going to be screwed over. We stopped at the border. And like, like, like you said, it was just a ridiculous system. So right now, honestly, I'm still like breathing a sigh of relief over how much better things were. But yes, compared to how they were in 2019, they're, right, they probably got worse. Um, at least they got rid of the rules about put away all your electronics during, uh, you know, during like, takeoff and landing. And you had another regulation that never made any sense, and they got rid of it without ever explaining or apologizing what they did. You know, like, oh, sorry, whoops. Yeah. I mean, what does that say? Um, I mean, that's something that I think about a lot also during this podcast, because you just, there's no mechanisms to get rid of these bad regulations, yeah. right? I mean, there, well, there is a mechanism out there. It's just democracy. If voters really thought these regulations were terrible and would vote for the person that, that would get rid of them, then I think they'd be gone by the next election. You know, if it was, if there was a debate and one candidate say, look, we all agree that these regulations are stupid, we're getting rid of them. I assume, like, I promise you. And the other side would either have to say, fine, I'll get rid of them too, of course, or stand up for them. And it was like a few things like that should, should tip the election. Just, you know, maybe you might say like one thing wouldn't be enough, but you know, like in politics, like a lot of national elections are really close. U.S. elections are really close. So one thing that changes 50,000 voters can flip an election in the U.S., in the right states, right? And yet uh, doesn't happen because voters don't, just don't respond to this kind of thing. Thinking like, you know, even though normal people hate these regulations in real life, furthermore, if there was an air, if there were two airports in their area and one had light regulation and the other had heavy regulation, they would totally go to the light, light, lightly regulated airport. It's not even some kind of public good. Like, like it's like actually would risk their lives to that slight degree. But still, if there was one politician saying, let's get rid of this regulation, the other one saying, we should not value mere convenience over human life, the, the second person would win. And it sucks, but that's the way politics works. Yeah, there is no, in, in, like, I think a lot about my own incentives when, when reading your work, because there's, it's just irrational for me to spend time thinking about these yeah. things that I can change anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, like, you know, I'll say, like, it lets people like us bond, Nicholas. It lets people like us bond. And also, so, like, I, that's why I ended up in a, a lot of the joy of this is at least getting to meet other people that are asking reasonable questions and thinking for themselves. And I like people like that. And people just being honest. 
Yeah. But at the same time, about, also like, you know, like the hardest things is being around people that are just saying things on the one hand, they're obviously not true, but on the other hand, you know, they're going to start belly aching if you tell them that, they're, that what they're saying is wrong. It's yeah. like, oh, I have to go and listen to this person, go and emote all over me. Poor me. I don't like it. But that's why I'm, I'm in venture capital and then technology startups, basically, right? Because usually it doesn't happen, but once in yes. a while, once every 10 times or something like that, someone can actually make a big change that people didn't anticipate mm -hmm. before. Yeah. Think of like Uber, for example. Oh, yeah. And break oh, the yeah, taxi sure. monopolies. So uh, is ESG messing up your life or not? No. Yes, because I know like there are some uh, you know, VCs in the US where people are saying, yeah, like you can't, they won't even talk to you unless you go and have diversity guidelines on your project, that kind of stuff. No, I, I don't think, experience yeah. much of that. Maybe I'm too small. Yes. So that doesn't affect me. Right. I mean, it's um, also something where it seems like in Europe, there's just much less legal incentive to care about this stuff. You don't have, you're not worried about getting sued for discrimination if you don't do ESG. Yeah, um, although I'm not yes. based in Europe, right? Yes. So ah, my fund is based in the United you know, States. Europe, you know, probably maybe the E part is worse, actually. Yeah. Right, like the, like people it's definitely all, more regulated. So it's yeah. definitely much higher fixed and legal costs to start mm -hmm. a VC fund yeah. or a financial business in that space. So actually, that's still better in the United States yeah. compared to yeah, other places. I mean, um, like, 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 like when I, when I've been in your, in Germany specifically, I mean, actually I went to taught a class in Germany and the students were quite lethargic, quite apathetic on many controversial topics. But then I finally actually gave a lecture where they were raising their hands and they were very animated and it was night and day. Can you figure out what topic would it be that would get German graduate students very agitated? Yeah. Umwelt, natürlich. Yes, the environment. I mean, when I was saying, look, what difference does it make if you if you ruin a million acres of Alaska? Well, like there's almost a million square miles in Alaska. No, no one will ever see it. What difference does it make? And they're like, <laughs> yeah, I haven't spent that much. Or like where I studied in Germany or what I did was a bit off that. Yes, but you but, know about all of the bizarre separate your trash rules in Germany. Yeah. Which, uh, as a foreigner, <laughs> even if I wanted to comply, I'm just like, this is like one of the hardest IQ tests I've ever taken here. <laughs> what about plastic with food particles on it? Where does that go? Yeah, yeah. But but given sort of what I said about, so sometimes something big can change in a very overregulated field, um, makes me wonder sometimes why you are not more interested or not writing more about cryptocurrencies. Hmm. Right, because it was basically a new technology that didn't mm -hmm. seek permission or government approval that all of a sudden made it in the interest of millions of people to read the arguments against the Fed, rather yeah. than against centrally controlled money. In two reasons, I haven't done very much on crypto. So one is by the time I was aware of it, there were already so many smart people working on it that I just didn't see a big opportunity for me. Normally, I try to go and work on topics where if I don't write about it, no one will or at least very few will. The other reason is that I got early confirmation that I was totally wrong about crypto because when I first heard about it, I heard about it from some libertarian students at a conference. And I basically just scoffed at them and said, yeah, this is barely better than a start your own country on an island project. This is never going to go anywhere. You're going to go and get people to, you're going to make up a new money, get people to use it. That's absurd. And then within a few years, assuming those kids did not sell, they were multimillionaires. So that was like, okay, well, it shows what I know. I'm so tempted to why say, should, why, why, why should I put, put myself as an expert on something 
where I was totally wrong about it when I first heard about it. And it was only when I was totally proven wrong that I even became really aware of it. I'm like, why should people listen to me on that subject? It didn't seem like I had any special insight. In fact, there was strong evidence that I had less insight than the people already working on it who were boosters. Maybe they got lucky, but still, like, I'll, actions speak louder than words. Like, they put their money in and they made a pile of money and I laughed at them and missed my opportunity. Yeah, you probably made many of my listeners chuckle when you're talking about, <laughs> oh, starting your own country on an island <laughs> because I'm based in Prosper, right? Yeah. So, ah, yeah. oh, I did, I did not realize that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you're doing very well by the standards of starting your own country. Yeah, but yeah. It's not like, you can just go, man, nothing that ever ha nothing bad will ever happen to us. No, but like, right now we're in a pretty good situation, much better than it seems so isn't, like isn't, from the headlines. So that's the one in Honduras, right? Yeah, yeah. So isn't the new government of Honduras hostile to you? Very hostile. So then why aren't you worried? Um, well, because the legal protections that the architects of the framework have designed are very good, right? So uh -huh. they're tied to international investment treaties. They're part of a constitutional change. So, and couldn't with the government, some, some judges who say, oh no, the constitution never said anything like that. I don't know what you're talking about. That is a possibility, right? But it's mm -hmm. much harder to get, to do that. Right. And right yeah. now they're pretty much yeah. in the defense. They pissed everyone oh. off. They made very bad communist mm -hmm. uh, tax reforms and they're now well into the second legislature and they haven't been able to undo us. Right. Yep. I mean, it's just so insane that in a country like Honduras with horrible poverty and problems, they look over at Prospera and say, oh, that, that's, the pro that's the big problem. We got to cut that out of it. It's a, it's a cancer on the body of Honduras. It's just like, what in the world is wrong with you? It's like, oh, that's right. Anti-market bias. Well, yeah, but at the same time, the, the, the you know, when you look at... Prospera is an affront to their entire worldview. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like when you have people, people that are around, like from local communities, from neighboring villages, they're like, jobs, yay. Yes, of course. <laughs> That's like, and like 50 or 60 or 70% of people in Prosper are Honduran, right? So they right. are either ones that are very close and benefit from it mm -hmm. because there's like jobs, there's income, or they're like educated Hondurans from the mainland who like it, so they can go there instead of the United States. So, so would, you say, would you say that like the J or Honduran janitors working in Prospera, do they hate the current government of Honduras or not? Yeah. So they do. All right. I mean, I mean it's, it's kind of a bit of a mix, I mean, right? It, it, so it's it, on it's an so, island. It's so impressive that just going and seeing something that works could, you know, would, would like, for, you know, would suppress what we think would be the natural political reaction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's lots to be said and, and talked about that. Um, but um, that to the point about cryptocurrencies and, you know, once in a while, especially in the business that I'm in, sort of one of these ideas, or at least the people in my business, myself or entrepreneurs, have a huge incentive for big changes, mm -hmm. right? So that's sure. why this industry exists. And that's why I think there's also hope. And once mm -hmm. in a while, we can change some of these regulations or overcome them or like develop solutions around them. Yeah, I mean, actually right now, I mean, I'm happy to give away my ideas for free and steal. Like if you get rich, just go and you don't even have to thank me. <laughs> <laughs> so like with the Supreme Court decision against further action, it's quite likely that other employees, that, that uh, discrimination, uh, you know, interpretations, discrimination law, things like the Griggs uh, case on, which basically allow, you know, allows lawsuits for hiring practices that have a disparate impact. Uh, I would go and recommend creating some businesses that very explicitly go and do hiring purely based on IQ tests and then wait to get sued and then take it to the Supreme Court. 
but I think it's actually likely that you, that you will win now. So like, yeah. of course you do have to sort of jump on the grenade of getting sued, but basically you need to find an industry where you don't worry much about public opinion anyway, and possibly one where you'll get some donors that really ideologically oppose this stuff who will back you up and then sort of combine, you know, it could be a combined business slash philanthropy to go and finally do you know, deal a mortal blow to discrimination laws. We know it. I mean, like another one actually would just be to, I mean, go after hostile workplace law and say, look, we, this is a workplace with free speech. Anyone who complains about someone saying something offensive is automatically fired. That's our policy. And then wait to get sued for that and and take it to the Supreme Court. This would be great. Yeah. So there's always in a while there are these opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. So that's it. Again, I think the, the much bigger opportunity is the hiring based upon discourse. It's one where, again, it's not really fully illegal, but to go and do it at the level of a large corporation with a lot of assets to lose. And then if you can win, say, okay, this is how we, we do things. We don't care about credentials. We're just going to hire this way. Um, and just, you know, basically you can scoop up a whole lot of uncredentialed talents and brains. Yeah. So anyone listening who's a legal hacker and who wants yeah, to take on yeah. that challenge. Hack this law. Like hack it while the, hack it while the sun's shining. Because, you know, this, you know, like just a, a two heart attacks could to- would totally change this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but why I raised the question about cryptocurrencies, I think maybe there is an interesting opportunity for you to spend more time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Because what I find very interesting is that within the cryptocurrency world, there's sort of another, or there are sort of political alignments, right? So the Bitcoin world, so there's kind of a sub universe that's called like the bitcoiners mm-hmm. they say we only want bitcoin and the rest is like evil and scams and they mm-hmm. have all the characteristics of kind of a more right-wing movement right mm-hmm. so they have like they're very much into masculinity and to assault oh, wow. rifles and into mm-hmm. like traditional family mm-hmm. and it kind of also has that religious mm-hmm. aspect of it mm-hmm. right so pray to the one god they, or do they actually have families or they just talk about how traditional families are great it's hard to say because it's also yeah. young right yeah. i mean it didn't really yeah become that much of an ideology right. before like 2020. Right. And then right. on the other side... So I'm only vaguely aware of this. So this sounds distinct for the manosphere, which in a way the manosphere is anti the traditional family because they're telling guys this is, that you're a sucker to get married, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just interesting to observe that, right? So there are these cultural rituals that form. And then on the mm-hmm. other side, you have the Ethereum ecosystem. Right, and that's much more embracing kind of of the nerd, of the outsider. It has a higher mm-hmm. built-in toleration for difference. It's kind of mm-hmm. very science-y, right? And has a strong mm-hmm. cultural emphasis on consent. It's not woke, not at all, right? These are mm-hmm. still like pro-libertarian yeah. movements, right? But um, I just find it interesting that human humanity seems to align to certain poles. And in the cryptocurrency world, maybe you see kind of a pure form of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. Of what people naturally gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. I'll say, I don't know enough to really say sort of the general idea that in every political culture, they tend to find one big issue to argue about. That seems very true. And that it's kind of arbitrary also seems true. You know, like you look at say the Middle East, normally it is an Islamist versus secularist divide, right? And it doesn't mean that it's uh, polarized, but basically everyone that that's the spectrum that seems that people seem to be very aware of, it seems to really matter. And it's important to understand the cultural details. Like secular does not mean atheist. (laughs) 
Like secular Arabs are still definitely Muslim generally in the Middle East. They want to be in Middle Eastern politics, but they don't want to go and base policies upon the Quran and the Islamists do. Right. If you look at like 19th century US politics, well, there's a big Catholic Protestant split and this correlated with a lot of the views, even on money, with Democrats being pro gold standard group and Republicans being the pro silver group. Yeah. It's fascinating how humans are developing, <laughs> right? And how we use stories and these large beliefs to form different groups, political coalitions. Like you could always, uh, you can often make the reverse story mm -hmm. with many of these biases, why it's a good thing to have social conformity, mm -hmm. right? Michael Humer wrote a great blog article about it. Like you don't want people, everyone running around doing crazy things, right? Yeah. So you want to be able to coordinate and signal to other people that, hey, I'm taking social norms seriously, right? I'm not going to do something crazy. So Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, we like, like, you know, so like I actually, two books down my queue. Let's see, where is it? Oh, let's see. Oh, uh, no, I think it's, not, let's see. I know it's one, we actually, the next book of essays is called You Will Not Stampede Me, Essays on Nonconformity or maybe Nonconformism. But anyway, it's, it's all about, you know, how uh, being a nonconformist is a mixed bag, but you should do it. Uh, and what, what I say is like, you need to be strategic about it. You don't feel, refuse to conform on everything. Find the things that actually, where there's large gains, doing something unusual and do those. On the other hand, I'm thinking, you know, sometimes, of course, the regular thing actually is a good idea. Other times it's not really a great idea, but the cost of going along with it is not that bad or the gains of conforming are so high, you should do it anyway. So anyway, that's uh, something else that looms on my mind. I definitely think of myself as a nonconformist, always have, but at the same time say, well, how have you managed to succeed in a very conformist occupation? And the answer is, you know, by taking the pulse, uh, like, what can I get away with here? So it's like, could I get away with doing a nonfiction graphic novel about social science when I was a grad student? No way. But once I got tenure, yeah, I can do that. Who's going to stop me? Yeah, that's, I'm looking forward to read those books as well, as, as well as several of the other books that, you, that you're writing, Build Baby Builds. I can't wait for that one. Yeah, yeah it's, we're, we're real close to done. It's taken a lot longer than expected, but it's going to be great. Yeah, are you still writing Poverty Who's to Blame? Uh, so that's, I moved that down my queue. Uh, the main thing I'm working on is Unbeatable, the Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets, which I just thought was a better idea that I could write more quickly and would have great, better influence. So I, I just said, okay, I'll be out of poverty. It'll, it'll get written eventually, as long as I live long enough. My health is fine, so I think I'm good. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, part of my nonconformist plan is to never retire, Yeah. ever. Uh, I don't know if you understand how US retirement law works, but you could never make a professor retire. Yeah. Like, which means like, if I can live to 100, I can have this job till I'm 100. Good. <laughs> I want you to write until you're 100 yep. or, or longer, maybe with yeah. the longevity yeah, biotech you know, like stuff I'm, that we're discussing on this you're, podcast. Like, hope, hopefully hopefully you're funding some life extension that will work. Oh, I am. Okay. Oh, great. I uh, hope it will work. I can't say work? that yet. But. <laughs> Do I like, like chance? What's the chance of me getting to live to 100? Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, it's hard to say. By the end of the century, we definitely, I think we'll be at a point where we're going to go into like the... 150 plus, maybe 200. So and I get to live in my biological body. I'm not just an upload or something like that. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I don't, um, don't want to be an upload. 
Yeah, I can send you some podcast episode about that that I did. Or um, th there's some really, really cool stuff that's happening in the space. Mm -hmm. But again, sort of the regulatory bottlenecks are the problem, right? And the DFDA is just work too slow and too expensive to iterate, right? So any of these new you know, things... The thing, would... like the, the, thing, the thing that would almost certainly work is just genetic pre-selection for longevity. We know that longevity has a strong genetic component. Unfortunately, this doesn't help any actual existing person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, there you True. have to do gene editing or something, which is super hard. Whereas just going and doing in vitro and then figuring out which genes lead to longevity and then only implanting the long-lived ones, that's totally doable with assistive technology, I think. Yeah, I think it already is possible in some places, yeah. right? It's not yep. even that. Um, yep. But yeah, we're almost at the end of time. Um, two questions maybe before uh, we part. Or one quick one, um, more like a recommendation if you're interested in the cryptocurrency side, because you said in your book on Austrian economics, I think in the Kato Unbound series, you made the, to me, convincing case um, that Austrian economics hasn't produced like original work that's distinctly Austrian. Mm -hmm. right? yeah, and true. There's mm -hmm. a lot of false originals. <laughs> exactly. But I think the there's an interesting one called the Bitcoin Standard by Safedan Amus. Okay. Right. So that is a very good intro into understanding sort of mm. that Bitcoiner world. I'm culturally more on the Ethereum side, but I think it's well written. Mm. And that could actually be an interesting case. Um, you might have something to pick apart, but at least I think it's well written and makes a very good case that's actually distinctly Austrian that could be good about or how Bitcoin could become a new world reserve currency standard. Mm. Um, I mean, which, which question... reminds me, you know, despite my anti-Austrian stuff and especially my anti-Hayek stuff, his denationalization of money is totally visionary and prescient. When I heard it, I just That's thought it. the most was totally ridiculous. Like I'm just going to print up some Kaplan's and I can buy something with them. Who's going to take these Kaplan's? And yet, somehow, crypto managed to do it. It's exactly. amazing. I remember, like, when I was 18, and Murray Rothbard was just saying, "Hey, I'm pretty, you know, put up all the hikes and Rothbard you want. Nobody's going to take them." Like, oh, actually, people did. Like, what? So exactly. Uh, That's so while, the... while I have heaped a lot of scorn on Hayek and. Uh, I will admit at least a lot of what bothers me is he just bothers me as a writer. I just can't stand his sentences. Just, honestly, his sentences make me sick that a person would pump his sentences. <laughs> so grotesque. And whenever someone tries to say, oh, he's German, of course, it's like, there are Germans who are excellent writers. It's not the language. It's a beautiful language. Read Nietzsche, read Mises, read Wagner. Like, these are wonderful sentences. It's a wonderful language. It's just he is a terrible, god-awful writer an affront to anyone who ever tried to write a decent sentence so reader would enjoy it. So yes, I will confess that I have a lot of antipathy to Hayek just as a writer. <laughs> but credit where credit's due. Denationalization of money was freaking visionary. Oh my God, I can't even believe it. Yeah, that's the, maybe that's a good um, part to end the conversation at because I'm glad that you see that. So that will be a very interesting avenue to explore. And it's also something that makes me hopeful, right? Because we've been able to do something against some of these yeah. big monopolies and, yeah. and that gives me hope and that's what some what many people that are investing in or that i that i work with are doing right so can we mm -hmm. do the same thing for science can we do the same thing for biology can we do the same thing for aviation right so and yeah. what I'm also yeah. trying to do with having more of these jurisdictions where you can have better laws and better regulations a more rational approach new for models of mm -hmm. governance to have um, safe havens for some of these technologies to um, to unleash their full potential. So yeah, makes a lot of sense. And again, this may this may be recency bias, but 
I just think that the current Supreme Court is so different from what it's been for the last hundred years. This is a golden opportunity to go and fund businesses that will do something that has been considered illegal for a long time and then not only make money by breaking the rule, but also get to the Supreme Court and change the law for everyone. That's the chaotic good. In, in yes. <laughs> chaotic good, manipulating lawful neutral, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not about that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, any last shout-outs that you want to give? Any references to your work? Anyone so this is, uh, you know, the book that we're talking about is Voters as Bad Scientists, Essays on Political mm -hmm. Rationality. You can get it on Amazon for 12 bucks for the paperback or $9.99 for the ebook. There's three other books of essays like this, but everything that I'm selling is on Amazon. And then my Substack is still totally free. It's uh, bet on it. Fantastic. It was amazing to have you finally on, Brian. I've been waiting for this for a very yeah. long time. Thank you so much yeah, for coming yeah. on. Totally my pleasure. And hello uh, to all my friends in Prospera. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got great